Numbers 21, four through nine. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you uh, please remain standing as I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we um, do not want to presume upon your presence this morning. We um, invite you to uh, work in us. Uh, May our hearts be a fertile soil to receive you, to receive your word. Lord, we believe that these old, sacred, ancient words uh, have everything to do with us today. Pray that you would show us and draw us closer to Christ through them. For we pray in his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you're new, I'm Ronnie, one of the pastors. It's a real privilege to be with you. Uh, You're joining us in the middle of a sermon series. We have been studying uh, the writings of Moses. So if you'll remember from our discipleship classes, uh, the Tanakh is the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, which is like uh, the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings. And so we've been studying the part of uh, the law uh, the Torah, and you know, that is the same thing as your uh, Old Testament, right? And the law of Moses is the Pentateuch. So we're studying uh, Numbers chapter 21 this morning. That's what we just heard. That's what Flo read for us. And it's, uh, you probably might have noticed, like last week, Jason taught uh, Numbers chapter 22. So we're backing up one chapter because um, we really want to dial into this chapter together. Uh, why? Why are we backing up? What I think is going to happen, what I'm begging the Lord to do, is actually through this ancient text, as we just kind of study this passage together, we're going to get a peek into our own hearts. And that's what I'm asking the Lord to do. And so let me explain how, we might, that, how that might happen. In Numbers chapter 21, the passage picks up. Israel has been wandering in the desert. Now, 38 years earlier, God saved Israel from the slavery in Egypt, but they haven't quite made it to the promised land, right? So they're saved, but they're not yet home. And uh, that in between is a very difficult place to be. The desert is a place where like pretenses and appearances are kind of stripped away. Uh, in the words of the great American poet Cindy Lauper, 
uh, Israel's true colors started coming through, you with the sad eyes. Uh, so w- what we're finding is that um, by studying this passage in the desert, I think we're going to learn about our true colors. I think our true colors might surface, and maybe it's not as pretty as we would like everyone to believe. So we're going to learn about our own rebellion, honestly. Um, now, if you were to study the book of Numbers, uh, all the commentaries uh, would tell you, and this is actually true of the whole Old Testament, is that there is this pattern in the life of Israel of rebellion and then repentance and then obedience. And they go, kind of go through this pattern. What we're going to see in Numbers 21 in these six verses is we're going to see that entire cycle manifested in just one occasion. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to walk through these six verses, just verse by verse, and show you how that, that pattern is, um, is surfacing, uh, even in this little microcosm of sorts. So let's look at the cycle of rebellion, and let's see if we can't see ourselves in it. And here's going to be our uh, sort of five steps. We're going to see first discontentment, then pain, repentance, mediator, and redemption. Those are going to be our, high, our five uh, headings. So let's begin with discontentment. All right, so you guys know at least just a couple times a year, if not a couple times a month, you'll hear me make like C.S. Lewis quotes or St. Augustine or Augustine. Americans, if you come from a Latino background, you'll say Augustine. I can't help it. Uh, but I love those guys. I love reading them. So let me just do it in tall order. Here we go. So Augustine, St. Augustine, in his most famous work, Confessions. He literally starts the whole book with these famous words. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, here's the idea. Our souls were designed to be located and hidden in the divine life of God. We were designed by God to find our full significance, security, identity, self-understanding exclusively in him. That's how your soul works. That's the deal. It's like a fish was designed for water. Your soul was designed for God. So when we connect our souls to other things, a certain restlessness and uneasiness a discontentment begins to hemorrhage. Uh, I can remember my youngest, Ruthie, one time she was two years old and we were at a mall and uh, she was throwing a huge fit, not like other, unlike other two-year-olds. And um, so there I am, I'm just trying to ride out the storm. You know, it's a little bit embarrassing to have a rowdy child at the mall, but whatever, I'm just kind of ignoring it, holding her hand and walking. At what point she just protests and just like collapses like in this rage and she just drops to the ground. Now I'm holding her hand and I keep holding her hand. I don't let go. At that moment, it dislocates her elbow. It's called nursemaid's elbow. And so her arm is still there, but the tendons and the ligaments are still attached, but the bone, and something's out of place there. And then all kinds of pain started to set in this two-year-old. And I could tell right away that her temper tantrum crying kind of shifted. It was a, it was a different kind of crying. It turned into something else. 
you know, we went straight to the doctor. The doctor fixed it, did this little thing, no problem, resolved it fairly quickly. But I learned a lot that day. I learned two things. One, when you inflict pain on your child like that, you lose sleep. Like, I just like, ugh, I just felt, you know, it haunted me. I hated that I did that. Um, but I learned a lot also that day about my own soul and how it's not anchored or in the proper place in God. See, when our soul is dislocated, it will hemorrhage with discontentment. There is this unquenchable thirst for something that will never satisfy. It's like this raging fever that is unaffected by medicine, right? It's like nothing is ever good enough. Your spouse is not good enough. Your body is not good enough. You never have enough money in the bank. Nothing is good enough. And we're bored with everything. And it makes us become really self-destructive. The chronic discontentment makes it really hard to see straight. It's like living with the feeling that you get after you've binged Instagram for a couple hours. You just, it's that kind of gross soul sadness that you can't quite describe, that cloud. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so our souls hemorrhage with discontent hemorrhage with complaining about everything. And then we become suspicious of everyone. And we're not grateful for anything because we're bored and we're angry and there's a kind of soul sadness. That's what we see in the lives of the Israelites. Look there at verse 5, our very first verse. And it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, here's the thing. What they're saying and alleging is not accurate. I mean, God gave them as much water as they needed, even miraculously through rocks. I mean, just the chapter before, Moses, who was filled with resentment, starts like beating on a rock. And even still, God was merciful, gave them fresh water. And each morning there was this, that they woke up, there's this infinite supply, this unending supply of manna. That's like literally like bread from heaven, like Panera bread, just always there waiting for you. Clearly, like Israel is not seeing straight. And they started to believe that Egypt was better. In Egypt, like Egypt, where they were slaves and harshly treated by Pharaoh. And what they were saying is that they would rather be treated harshly as slaves and subject to an evil king than to be free sons and daughters of a good king. These are people who saw the Red Sea miraculously dry up as they walked through it. These are the people who saw God manifest in a pillar of cloud and fire as it led them to safety. These are people who have food every day, and they've never farmed or hunted. It's incredible. Can you understand, like, how offensive this is? I mean, this is like ingratitude of the highest order. How did they get to this place? Like, how did they get there? Here's a question. How did we get there? <laughs> how did we get there? Discontentment. It's like a gateway drug. 
Nothing is ever good enough for us. We're living life with this low-grade fever, a fever of discontentment and boredom and soul sadness. I want you to examine yourself. Like, ask the question, where in your life do you struggle to be content? Your contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. God has given you and I enough to be satisfied, but we're not. But we're not. How come? It's because our souls are dislocated. Our souls are not attached to God. We're spiritually hemorrhaging with discontentment, and it will eventually kill us. That's step one, discontentment. Let's go to the second step, pain. So one of, the, one of the unique features of Christianity is that our faith gives us a set of glasses to look at the world like a filter, and those glasses allow us to see and interpret things that others don't. So, for instance, Christianity gives us the right and even, I would say, the responsibility to reinterpret our pain, So for Christian, pain is the chief instrument that God uses to to get our attention. In fact, most people will never give Jesus a second thought until they encounter a crisis. Sometimes it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a divorce, family. uh, Maybe it's a health crisis. Your body's failing you. But something has to get your attention. Otherwise you might start to believe that you're a God. And you'll begin to live as if Christ didn't even exist. Listen, you will never wake up from your delusion until something painful happens. Your doctor will not get your attention until you start dying. Until that fever we're talking about starts burning in your soul, nothing will get your attention. Pain. Pain uh, might kill you. You could die. But it will be the only thing that gets your attention. Israel turned their back on God, but God loved them. I mean, he couldn't stop loving them. But he had to wake them up from their delusion. And so he sent pain. And by pain, I mean snakes. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, some of your translations uh, might say uh, venomous snakes. Maybe that's how you, um, what your your Bible might say. Uh, But the, the commentaries will tell you a more very literal translation is literally fiery snakes, fiery. And why did Moses call them fiery snakes? It's because when these snakes bite a person, it feels like fire is running through their veins. I mean, the fever is so high, and it makes a person experience this unquenchable thirst until they finally die. But here's the thing, and this is what's important to know. Israel was already dying with a fever that plagued their soul with this unquenchable thirst rebellion towards God that would kill them, and they didn't even know it. 
And these snakes induced physically what was already happening spiritually. But now, the grace is they know they're dying. This pain is the only thing that can alert them to a deeper problem that they have. How about you? Are you listening to the pain in your life? It's got a lesson for you. Are you paying attention to the pain? Because God is alerting you to a deeper sickness, you see. When God inflicts pain in your life, he doesn't do it like a murderer with a butcher knife. He comes to you like a skilled surgeon who will inflict pain, but in order to restore you, to make you whole, to make you human. It hurts, of course. It's not without pain, but it's necessary. It's like the warning light on the dashboard. Where do you need to check under the hood? Pain. Well, that's step two. Step three in this cycle for Israel is repentance. Um, as, as you guys know, I, uh, you know, my parents are Mexican. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, if you, uh, a few of y'all got to meet my mother. My, my parents have been here the last couple weeks. So they're not here today. Um, she's uh, really lovely. She's a really lovely woman. Uh, she's crazy, but she's so much fun. So much fun. Uh, but she's like this Latina diva, right? She's kind of prissy. Uh, she likes nice things. She likes air conditioning. <laughs> she likes good food. And you know what she doesn't like? Sweating. No sweating for that woman. In fact, I can't remember a single occasion in my childhood seeing my mother sweat. So she didn't exercise often. Uh, well, several years ago, I had to fly home from San Juan, uh, emergency trip, because my mother was dying of a heart attack. And the doctors needed to do a bypass surgery immediately. So my dad uh, was in Iraq. He was, uh, worked for the Department of Defense. He was in Iraq at the time. So I flew from San Juan to Houston. It happened very fast. I got there just in time from the airport straight to the hospital. And it was just me and my mom. Um, right before, so my, my mother is in like the gown that they put uh, right before you go into surgery. It's just me and her, we're having a moment, and she looks me in the eyes, and she says, son, am I going to die? I love my mother very much, and I said, I don't know, mom, you might. Are you ready to die? Are you ready? So I prayed over her, and the doctors took her away, and she survived. Uh, She was here last week. But the event got her attention. Guess what? My mother sweats a lot now. She repented of her sedentary lifestyle. Now she tries to walk three or four miles every single day. This got her attention. Well, God got the attention of the Israelites through serpents. And just like my mom, they repented too. Look there at verse 7. Look at the first part of verse 7. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, 
for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, the beauty of this confession is they took full responsibility for their sin, right? They didn't, they didn't minimize it. They didn't rationalize or justify their sin. They didn't shift the blame onto someone or something else in order to justify their actions, right? They recognized that their actions were deplorable, that it was, a, it was, a, it was an utter offense against the God of the universe, Right? This isn't just them saying, I'm sorry, in order to manipulate some outcome. They recognize that if indeed they were to die in that moment by the venom of these snakes, that that would actually be a just punishment. That's how bad and how deplorable their offense was. And here's the point. What's true for Israel is um, it's true for us. That is, if you want to get right with God to relocate your soul, like popping a dislocated shoulder back into its socket, you have to recognize the darkness of your rebellion. Don't rationalize it. Don't don't, don't try to make it appear like it's not that bad. Don't shift blame for your actions. Just declare in full humility God, I have sinned against you. My actions are a revolt against your authority in my life. And this is not okay, God. I deserve to be eaten by a snake. Have mercy on me, a rebel, a sinner. And when you pray like that, guess what? God has mercy. He has mercy. Why? Step four, a mediator. Let me explain how a mediator works. If God exists, and he does, then he is perfect, right? He's he's perfect in every way. There's no contamination in his character. This is the Lord of Lords, right? The creator of the universe, the almighty one. There's no contamination in his character. He is holy and he is just. And that is really good news, right? I mean, who wants an unholy and unjust God? This is good news. And while we're thankful that God is holy and just, even still, we find in in ourselves this weird estrangement from God. Why? Why is there this estrangement from God? It's because we are unholy and unjust. And we can't even be in the presence of God because we are contaminated. And his holiness and his justice would so violently purify us by heat that is so hot, it would immediately incinerate us and there would be nothing left of us. This is what we learned about in Leviticus, right? Every time in the Bible a, a person in so much as hears the voice of God, it strikes fear in them so severe that they think that they're on the verge of death. That's how serious the holiness of God is, that even his voice is frightening. So we need a representative. Now this concept of a representative may be a touch confusing, so let me illustrate it. Um, So just recently, my CG, uh, you know, Matt Abbott invited a couple guys over to just watch the U.S. men's national team, you know, play soccer, uh, these qualifying, you know, tournaments, ultimately moving towards the World Cup. And um, I'm, I was thinking about why it's so exciting to watch the U.S. men's national team or the women's team. Why is it so exciting? Um, it's because when they win, like we win, 
right? Like, they win, we win. Like, we're, they represent us. That's why it's so exciting. We feel like we're winning. Uh, so why, but the question we have is who, then, we understand men's national team, women's national team, soccer representing us and our country, but who can, like, re- represent us before God without being destroyed? Well, our representative would have to be someone who's fully human, right? Someone who's from our country, someone who's one of us. But he'd also have to be fully divine, someone who's perfectly holy and just, so he wouldn't be incinerated by God's holiness and justice. People have always had a sense that we as humanity need someone to represent us before God, because we're not we're not adequate in ourselves to do so. And that's true for Israel. And for this reason, after they repented, they immediately recruited a mediator to represent them. Look back at verse 7. Look there at verse 7. So the people came to Moses. We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, against you. And then immediately they say to Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the servants from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And notice that they ask Moses to represent them. See that? And so he did. And that, that impulse is the correct impulse. They were correct to look for someone who can represent them. They would not dare represent themselves before the God of the universe. This is a really important part of the cycle that we see in Israel that we have to understand for ourselves. Listen, Israel did not like look at their sin and then look to themselves for the necessary resources to make God happy, right? They didn't look inside of themselves. They didn't simply try to like try harder by their own strength. They didn't just try to clean themselves up. They looked outside of themselves for someone who could represent them to God. No matter how disciplined or how many good works they did, they knew that even then they needed someone else. And that is still true today. If you want to get right with God, you cannot do it by trying harder. That's the problem with the sort of therapeutic evangelicalism that's kind of plagued American religion. Like, we, we have made the Christian life about the Christian life. It's not, Right? The Christian life is about Christ. We don't need to try harder. We need Jesus. We need a mediator. We need a mediator, not simply to become a Christian. We need a mediator for every single part of our life. And this is not something we just do once and just kind of move on, right? Tim Keller, who I love, who's been so helpful to me, he says it like this. He says, listen, if a person is dying of thirst— You give them water. But if that's the last glass of water that the person ever drinks, then they're still eventually going to die of thirst. So you have to keep going back to the fount. We need a mediator. And not simply, not only for forgiveness, but also for freedom and for growth and for life. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up so that God likes you. 
It's about running to a mediator. It's about holding tight to Jesus and falling at his feet and kissing them because they're beautiful. That's why, that's why if you're new here, that's why Denver Prez is so crazy about Jesus. That's why we talk about him all the time. We're nuts about him. We keep running to him for everything. And of course, we look to him for salvation, but we also look to him for just life in general, for everything. See, society, our culture, thinks that the problems in the world are out there. Like someone else is why society's broken. And the solution to our problems are right in here. That, that's the narrative that we're taught by society. But you know what Christians believe? Christian thinks that the problem and the brokenness of the world is here. It's us. It's not some other dude. It's not someone on social media. It's us. And the solution is outside of ourselves. Our solution is the mediator. We do not have resources within us to make God happy, but Jesus does. And so we look to him, and we worship him, and we're grateful. So let's move to our very final step in this cycle. Redemption. So in our text, we find that Moses is this inadequate mediator. That's not a problem because God provides his own mediator. More specifically, he points us to a stick that's mounted on a, a snake that's mounted on a stick. It's weird, right? It's kind of a weird thing. Can we all agree? Uh, it's a famous symbol, actually. Uh, did y'all know that this has become a universal symbol for medicine and healing? So kids, when you see like an ambulance drive by, look at the little sticker. You're going to find like the star. And you're going to see a stick with a, a snake on it. Or like the doors of uh, the hospital. It's a stick with a snake on it. It's weird. You know, now, that you, now that I'm drawing your attention to it, you're going to be like, wow, there are a stick and a snake. Wh- whose idea was that? Um, many people, some people trace this to Greek mythology, but where did those, where did those mythological stories come from? I suspect it's from Numbers 21. You know why? Because it's totally counterintuitive. And let me explain. So at this point in the story, in our narrative, many people have been bitten by snakes. And it must have felt like fire was running through their veins. Fever, thirst, and death. We're coming soon. So they asked Moses to be their mediator. God offers his own option. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Look back at your Bibles. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery servant and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that inflicted this pain is what God wants them to fix their eyes on. How come? Because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Edmund Clowney, Ed Clowney likens this to like a dog biting you. And then the way you get healed from the dog and the rabies shot is to stare at its teeth. It's weird, right? That's not exactly the most comforting thing is to stare at a dog's teeth after it's bit you. 
Now, in addition, that makes this story so weird about the snake on a stick, is that in a Jewish context, snakes are ceremonially unclean animals. Israel had already been taught to stay away from snakes. They're ceremonially unclean, and more, they represent the very instrument, you know, the instrument that Satan uses to fool Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. All kinds of mess here. So what's the point? Because it's weird. The depth of the symbolism only, can, only becomes clear with Jesus. Do you remember the night that Jesus is, um, this is in John chapter 3, he's having a conversation with Nicodemus. You guys remember that? Uh, Jesus was explaining who he is. He was revealing his identity. He explains that each person must believe in him and be born again. And that was kind of a weird conversation. Y'all remember that? And so who did Jesus say that he was when he revealed his identity? Let me read this. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm that snake. Jesus says, if you fix your eyes on me, like Israel fixed their eyes on the snake, you will live. But why a snake? And why did Jesus choose to identify himself with something that rep- represents rebellion? I have read lots of commentaries on this. But Tim Keller, once again, his, his response is the most compelling, most convincing. He says the only way to make sense of this is to understand Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, God made him to, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus was raised up and stuck on a pole. And he became sin. He didn't become sinful. Rather, he becomes sin, right? Sin was put on him. And there on the cross, as he hung there, with nails through his hands and feet, thorns on his brow, it was like fire was running through his veins. He experienced a spiritual fever, unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And this unquenchable thirst comes over Jesus. A soul, like a thirst of the soul. And what does he say? What are the, what is one of the most important words he says from the cross? He says, I thirst. What Israel learned that day is what we must learn. These ancient texts are so important for modern people, everyone. The only way for you and I to survive this fiery, venomous rebellion that has dislocated our souls is to fix our eyes with faith on the snake or what's behind that snake. It's Christ. 
if you look upon him and behold with faith, you'll live. You'll live. There is no other cure. You need to know that. There's no other cure. So the story of Israel's cycle of discontentment and pain and repentance and the mediator and redemption, this story describes the cycles of modern people. It's us. It's us. Our souls are dislocated and they're hemorrhaging with soul sadness and self-destruction. Guys, just look around your neighborhoods. I'm not making this up. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is looking for salvation somewhere. Nothing's working. The fever won't go away. This fever is a sadness in our soul, but we are not without hope. May this ancient story in Numbers about a snake on a pole, may it provoke your affections for Jesus, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the promised one. He's our healer. Run back, run back to the cross, all of you who are sick with guilt, discontentment, and sadness. Amen.